Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with Frederica Kindkovac about her recent book, Written Here, Published There, How Underground Literature Crossed the Iron Curtain, published by Central European Press. This book provides a richly detailed description of the social practices, debates, and discourses that were part of a transnational literary community created by Thomas Dott, literary works written in communist Europe but published in the West. Frederica Kainkovic looks at the practicalities of book smuggling and publishing houses, as well as how literary transmission between East and West was shaped by and contributed to the human rights movement. Welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Frederica. Hello. As a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in East European history. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, If I want to talk a bit about my background, I think I need to start with my childhood and youth, um, because if I think about that, uh, it would have been absolutely natural for me to become a French historian. This was mainly due to the fact that my parents were really Francophile. They had been living in Paris in the late 1960s, and they had fallen in love with French cuisine and French chansons. Um, But this had also meant that we had spent most of our holidays uh, in France, and I also attended a French secondary school. But at the same time, I had um, also traveled quite often to Poland um, because both of my sisters had been living in Poland in the late 1960s late 90s. Um, Also, my secondary school had been establishing a school exchange program with Krakow in which I participated. Um, So for many years, I had a very close contact to an exchange student in Krakow. And during those visits to Poland, I got to see the all-Jewish neighborhoods in Krakow, um, the reconstructed town of Warsaw, and we also um, jointly uh, all visited the concentration camp in Auschwitz. So I got very much interested in Central East European history. But uh, when it came uh, to the decision of what I'm going to study, um, it was still very, very natural to me to start studying Romance languages. Um, and I was always sure that history should be the main field, and I combined it with art history. So um, in the very beginning, I became a really classically trained West European historian. Um, and I also developed a major interest in Spanish history. And I, I really planned to stick to these parts of European history. But um, when I was done with my undergraduate studies in Freiburg in Germany, I moved to Britain, to St. Andrews in Scotland. And um, there I um, did my master's degree and I took a course on 20th century East Europe uh, with Paul Vishny, a Czech historian. And here I really sort of shifted my um, attention from Western Europe to Central Europe. And I decided as well to do my master's thesis on on Central Europe. But the problem was at that time that I only spoke French, Spanish, uh, had learned Latin. So I started wondering if I should rather learn Polish or Czech or Russian. But then um, life happened and I met my future husband who is Hungarian. So... I changed my mind and um, decided to learn Hungarian instead of Polish or Czech. So I'm not a really classically trained East Europeanist, but I became rather something like a transnational historian. That's a really interesting. It's always um, amazing to me to hear the life paths that uh, people take through their to their scholarship, and that that's interesting how you got to Eastern Europe. But what led you to study underground literature in communist Europe? Um, So while I was at St. Andrews University, um, I had to start thinking about a possible topic for my master's thesis, and I got really absolutely fascinated by the Central European debate of the 1980s, and my professor at the time suggested me to have a look at the New York Review of Books, 
because that could uh, be a really good source for materials on the region during the Cold War. Um, so what I did is I went down to the cellar of the university library and checked out the old issues of the New York Review. And I was so astonished by the presence of so many Central and East European authors in this New York journal. So I wanted to find out um, how it happened that this uh, journal became one of the major outlets for underground and immigrant writers from the so-called other Europe. Um, and I found all these articles by immigrants like George Conrad or Milan Kundera. But there were also articles by writers that hadn't been immigrated. So what I wanted to find out then was what made these authors turn towards these uh, kind of Western print media and um, how did they establish the contacts um, to the West? And as well, I was wondering how did the West get excited about this kind of literature? Um, but at that time, I couldn't yet answer all these questions because that was just the topic of my PhD. So in my master's thesis, I really focused very much on the Central European debate. And that's where I sort of got in touch as well with Jesse Leboff, one of my close colleagues with whom I as well edited a volume some years ago, because she was also very much into this debate. So written here, published there is a study of Thomas Dot. Can you explain for our listeners what Thomas Dot is and how it is different from Thomas Dot? So <clears throat> Thomas Dot is the Russian term for publishing over there. Um, that meant publishing on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Um, and this term referred to the illegal transfer and publication of uncensored literature in Western print media. Um, and what happened is that it either appeared in the original language or in translation. Um, but what was really common to all of these texts was that um, the publication happened um, without official authorization. And the term Tamistad seems to have been first used in connection with the Western publication of Boris Pasternak Shivago in Russian um, in Milan in 1957, but it's not really confirmed. So that's what I'm assuming, but um, I couldn't prove that in my book. Um, Tamistad was formed in analogy to Samistad, um, which describes the underground press in the author's own countries. Um, but so Samistat and Tamistat were two alternatives to a publication in the state publishing houses. Um, but these two alternative uh, strategies differed as well somehow. Um, with Samistat, um, your writing was limited to the literary underground, and with Tamistat, you could really reach a real publicity. But the problem was that this publicity wasn't really in your own country. So um, if you compare these two different outlets, um, both of these forums had um, their advantages, but also their disadvantages. Um, and what happened is that many of the underground writers developed as well into Tamistad writers. So I would say that um, it's really hard to separate these two spheres. So part of my book is as well about the underground publishing, because they were very, very closely intertwined. Mm -hmm. And another kind of basic uh, question to ask before we get into the book is that you refer to the writers who produced underground literature as nonconformists rather than dissidents. So what's the distinction and why is that important? Um, so the problem with the terms dissent and dissidents is that the Soviet authorities originally used them to denounce those individuals that um, criticized the system. And I think this is why many authors uh, refuse to ever identify with these politicized labels. Um, still, in some of the interviews I conducted, they, they wouldn't ever want to be called a dissident. Um, another issue was that Western media were very much obsessed with any type of expression of dissidents or opposition or the underground. They really picked on that. Um, and I, I, I felt that they tended to misuse these materials um, to fight the Cold War in the field of literature. But um, uh, the Central and East European writers didn't want to be read simply for their rejection of the system. They wanted to be read for um, the literary quality of the writing. Um, so I decided, um, <laughs> possibly as well for uh, out of emotional purposes, that I rather use the term nonconformist because I didn't want it. I, I wanted to explicitly avoid the politicization uh, and the political use of terms like dissent and dissidence. 
And I believe that nonconformism better reflects the author's refusal to further conform to the literary conventions um, at home. You begin the book with the most well-known examples of the repression of writers in the Soviet Union. As you mentioned, the 1957 publication of Boris Pasternak's novel, Dr. Zhivago in Italy, the 1966 trial in the Soviet Union of the writers Yuli Daniel and Andrei Sanyavsky, and also the publication of works by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. How do these serve as paradigmatic examples of the literary front of the Cold War? Um, the works you just mentioned, um, namely Pasternak, Sanyavsky, and Solzhenitsyn, um, I believe they represent the three most famous literary scandals of Tamisat. Um, a few words about Shiv- Dr. Shivago. So Dr. Shivago by Pasternak from 57 was the first and most prototypical Tamistad bestseller. And I think it offers a pretty nice way into understanding the very origination of Tamistad. Um, Pasternak was one of the first authors that sent his work abroad. Um, and even if this was a really harmless book in terms of its content, um, its form deviated from the aesthetic conventions of um, socialist realism. So I found it really, really interesting uh, to look at the scandal surrounding um, this book and its publication. Um, and uh, for instance, everybody knows that Pasternak won with his book the Nobel Prize in 1958, but he had to re- reject it. And I think that shows us nicely how important this book was in the uh, early um, literary Cold War. And as to Sinyavsky, a shift to the trial on Sinyavsky and Daniel in 1966, uh, which I swear read as a kind of war on Tamistad. Um, I think that here Tamistad is put on trial because both of these authors were um, condemned to labor camps because they actually published their writings in the West. And as well, the whole trial turned around the issue of publishing over there. So I believe that the trial here gives us a really interesting insight into the Soviet logic of the illegality of publishing abroad. Um, And another issue is that the trial was very unique in terms of its um, impact on the West. Um, Through this trial, we can identify um, as well the Western reaction and as well the Western understanding um, of the freedom of the writer. Um, what is perhaps what could be noted here is this, uh, that uh, not just the book of Sinyavsky and Daniel reached the West, but also the transcript of the trial. Um, it was published under the title The White Book. Um, so I think we have here some kind of double Tamistan. We have a trial that was caused by a publication in the West, and we have a transcript of the trial. And that again was smuggled to the West and caused the trial. Um, Ginsburg and Galanskov, who had transcribed the trial and who had smuggled uh, the material to the West, were facing again a trial in 1968. Um, and the Western publication of the transcripts uh, led to a chain reaction of public appeals. So we can really see here how um, the literary worlds in East and West were interconnected. And last about Solzhenitsyn. Um, I think this is the key work which triggered an amazing response on the side of the Western public. His works did absolutely change um, the way the West thought about Eastern Europe, Um, especially, I think, uh, his account of his experiences in the Gulag system disillusioned the Western left, um, uh, first and most above, about uh, Stalin-type communism, And again, Solzhenitsyn received also the Nobel Prize of Literature in 1970 for his Tamistad books. And I think this again indicates how central his works were in the eyes of the Western literary elite. Um, But if I want to come back now about why I picked these three moments of Tamistad is to introduce the reader to the political dimension of Tamistad. Um, Tamistad was a really hot topic of the time. Um, and the discourses over Tamistad, they help us to understand the literary competition between East and West. Um, but um, I'm really happy that my book is not ending with these three trials, but that I have a few more chapters which are not about the political dimension of Tamistad. 
And you do argue in your book that literary self-expression and imagination were not political in themselves. And you referred to that already when you were um, explaining why you choose, chose the term nonconformist. Um, but instead, as these trials demonstrate that the censorship regimes in communist Europe politicized um, these works. So tell us about the underground literary communities that developed as a result of this politicization. Um, in a number of interviews which are conducted, um, I did interviews with underground writers and as well with Western publishers, but in the interviews um, in Central Europe, I could identify that many of the writers turned to some extent um, only because they wanted to preserve their personal integrity. Um, they didn't make really an active, uh, they didn't actively decide for this, but um, it was rather an act of self-defense against the state. Um, there often came a point in their life when they were no longer willing to accept um, how the regime invaded their private lives. Um, so intellectuals like the Czech Yudina Shiplova felt uh, that the state prevented her from living an undisturbed literary life, how she called it. Um, so people like her felt that they were forced to become non-conform. This was when um, many writers turned to the uh, underground and here we can really see a shift from private suffering or individual suffering um, to, to the daring uh, move to start again living in truth, how Václav Havel would call it. Um, but it was, I would really say that it was very, very seldom active resistance from the beginning. It was rather a reaction. Um, but these experiences were shared um, by a great number of literary people. Um, and that's, I think, uh, why very many close ties could start to develop. Um, you can see here how a circle of friends with similar experiences um, formed into some kind of micro communities. Um, one of the um, interview partners um, once said that it was something like an organic mechanism. Um, and to this organic mechanism, a number of people contributed, people like underground writers, printers, typists, smugglers, and publishers. And that was really one of the key motivations for my book. I wanted to figure out who, who helped to sort of form this literary community. Um, what's need, what needs to really be mentioned is the um, um, very particular importance of the private places and flats. Um, the private flats of underground writers they represented hubs of these micro-communities, um, especially kitchens uh, took up an important social function um, because it was here where many conversations and some study readings took place. Um, another aspect which needs to be mentioned and um, on which uh, Anne Komaromi has um, worked a lot is that Samistad was a completely self-made endeavor. It was a real homework in which a great variety of people was involved. Often some is that literature would be materially produced and reproduced in private flats. Kitchens, gardens, bathrooms were important places to print and copy and hide materials. And I argue in my book that the secretive character of all these activities had an, a very, very important social function. Um, also, the material side of some is that was uh, crucial. Um, the production and reproduction of Samistad uh, was real labor, and it took ages to print up or copy up uh, uh, Samistad tags. Um, so many of these manuscripts gained an um, immense value and also great popularity. Um, and uh, this, uh, this amazing uh, invested labor uh, turned these homemade books into real treasures. Um, but these local Samistad communities, they were not entirely isolated. I could identify um, a number of transnational encounters. Um, for instance, there was this Polish-Czech-Slovak solidarity. But after having really looked uh, in a comparative framework at the whole region, I would say that uh, direct contact um, between activists from different countries within Eastern uh, Europe was very limited. Um, Yet, I would say that we can talk of something like an imagined community or a community of thought. And the books and the essays um, that were often as well translated in the other Central and East European languages, um, they were sort of, um, they functioned in, uh, in a way that they were linking these communities. 
Um, and through the books, um, ideas uh, could be shared across borders. And um, um, and I think what was really important that um, the underground writers within the different countries could, by means of the books, really uh, learn about the personal stories of other authors and about the condition of the Samistad sphere in the other countries. And then this community that you just described became connected um, to the West during the first two decades of the Cold War, mainly through literary scholars and Russian translators who initiated interest in these underground writers. So tell us about the journals and publishing houses that were publishing, um, particularly Soviet writers, in these early decades of the Cold War. Um, in my book, I looked at a handful of journals that appeared between 45 and 65 in Western capitals, such as New York, um, Paris, London, as well as Berlin. And all of these journals published early nonconformist articles from the Eastern Bloc. Um, and the journals, they were part of um, some kind of a transatlantic ne network of anti-communist journals. Um, and they played quite an important role in what one might want to call or not want to call the early cultural court war. Um, I want to mention here three anti-communist journals of the early Cold War. Um, these were Encounter, Preuve, and Problems of Communism. And all of them were founded by the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and they were directly or indirectly funded by the CIA. Um, yet they were at the same time highbrow uh, inter intellectual publications um, that really served as um, principal vehicles uh, of these intellectuals. So you, you have often this ambi ambivalent role of um, Samistad outlets. On the one hand, they were often receiving government fundings and CIA funding. Still, they were, they were run by intellectuals. Um, and these donors here, they really helped to promote early Samistad in the Western sphere. Um, for instance, between 53 and 62, um, all of them debated the literary phenomenon Pasternak in depth. Um, or they would publish um, so-called dissonant voices. So later it turned into dissidents, but in the 50s they often talk about dissonance. And that min meant uh, that included literature uh, which wouldn't uh, conform to the rules of socialist realism. And you point out that these Western publishers were in the paradoxical situation of being partly responsible for the persecution and sentencing of the very writers they were trying to support. So what were the risks for these underground writers in publishing abroad? And how did Western publishers deal with this dilemma? Um, I would argue that publishing in the West was always a very ambivalent issue. Um, on the one hand, the authors finally really gained a real publicity um, but on the other hand, the publication in the West um, could and often did as well result in the persecution and imprisonment of authors. Um, therefore, as well, the publishers of Tamistad uh, found themselves in a very paradoxical situation. They helped underground writers to get into print, to become well-known and gain publicity. Um, but they could also find themselves in the situation of being partly responsible um, for the persecution of um, many of the authors. Um, and this uh, really created a dilemma, both to the authors as well as to their Western publishers. Um, Michael Scamell, who ran Index on Censorship, once said that um, these publishers give them um, some kind of moral support, but they endanger their lives as well. Um, and as to the risks... Um, I think you, we need to really take care of what time we are talking about, which countries. Um, so the early 1950s in the Soviet Union would be something entirely different from the 1970s in Hungary. So in the 50s, you could indeed risk to be sent to the Gulag. Um, but in the 70s, Hungary, you would only lose possibly your job um, or you would be exiled to the West. Uh, none, of these, none of these options are nice, but I think really... Uh, one needs to look at uh, what time we are looking at. And all in all, publishing abroad always carried risks. Um, therefore, many tummies that works were published under pseudonyms, um, and publishers did everything to secure the anonymity of some endangered authors. Um, but the problem with anonymity was that authors then could um, neither gain fame 
nor could they really earn money. And you already referred to the transnational literary communities that existed, uh, at least in imagination, within communist Europe. But the um, smuggling out of materials and publishing in the West created a transnational community that crossed the Iron Curtain. So what motivated publishers such as Carl Van Het Reeve, who founded Alexander Hertzen Foundation, and Carl and Ellen Dia Proffer, who set up artist publishers? What what drove them to be involved in this publishing? Um, the Alexander Hertzen Foundation in Amsterdam was really a great initiative. And it gives us some insight into the historical legacy of publishing abroad in Russia. Um, Van Hetrev was a Dutch professor um, of Russian literature at Leiden University. And he set up the, this foundation in 1969 in Amsterdam. And his idea was to publish underground literature from the Soviet Union in the West. Um, and um, he named his foundation after Alexander Herzen because in 1953, Herzen had established a free Russian press in London, and this press had a very similar aim. Herzen had used the um, more liberal publishing condition in other countries to circumvent Russian censorship. And Fanadrev really picked on that and was inspired by Herzen um, and wanted to do something very similar. Um, in contrast, um, artists, um, so Karl and Eleander Proffer, they were neither immigrants which is, I think, for these two publishing initiatives, something special because a lot of the uh, Tamistad publishing initiatives were run by immigrants. Um, but the proffers, they were simply in love with Russia and in love with Russian literature. That's what they always said. And they founded artists in Ann Arbor in the early 1970s. And this press became quite famous. Um, they published non-conformist authors from Russia and reprinted Russian books that were out of print. But I think what them what made them really most famous was uh, were their translations of um, Russian books into English. Um, but these two initiatives were not the only ones. Um, I just want to mention that there was a Czechoslovak publishing house, 68 publishers, um, or the London-based Palach Press Agency, uh, the Czechoslovak Documentation Center for Independent Literature. Um, so. Many of these initiatives uh, were involved in promoting, distributing, and publishing works that would have been otherwise sort of rather condemned to um, what we want to call desk, desk drawer literature. Mm -hmm. And we should pause here to talk about an important practical aspect of Thomas Dot. How were these works actually smuggled across the so-called Iron Curtain? How did they get out to the West to be published? Um, I'm really happy to talk about more about the social practice involved in Tamistad. Um, first of all, we have the production of Samistad, and then we have the circulation of Samistad across the Iron Curtain. Um, but I would like to argue that the production of Samistad and Tamistad was very much connected. Um, Tamistad would not really have emerged if they had not been yet developed some kind of illegal social activity inside the other Europe. Um, the circulation of Samistad um, provided insiders with the know-how as to how to smuggle literature. And what's the difference, I think, between these two media is that Tamistad was passed secretly from hand to hand. And on the other hand, Tamistad was passed secretly from country to country. Um, but I think it was exactly this peculiar secretive activity which fascinated Western audiences. So Tamistad involved in advanced social practice of organized smuggling. Um, it was dependent on activities um, and activists on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Um, and when I talked to a number of these former Tamistad writers and publishers, um, I really gained the impression that the practice of smuggling had something of a movie thriller. Um, in order that Tamis that could actually happen, um, a lot of these sort of mediators or literary middlemen had to operate everywhere. I could identify immigrants, foreign correspondents, diplomats, ambassadors, um, tourists, students, writers, human rights activists, um, as well as translators. Um, especially Western tourists and writers, um, they served as so-called carrier pigeons because they did not risk imprisonment. Um, um, 
what many of these publishing houses did as well, they used entirely or complete strangers to deliver manuscripts because that way the, the, the transfer ways could be kept anonymous. Um, what needs to be mentioned here is that as well, um, that smuggling not only took place in one way, but it was a back and forth movement uh, because also the literary underground in Central and Eastern Europe was um, supplied with paper Xeroxing machines or ink um, to keep their Somerset publishing active. Um, but smuggling not always involved people. There existed a number of ways to um, get literature out in other ways. Uh, first of all, sometimes the reality of literary smuggling was quite profane. Um, for instance, the Soviet police wasn't able to open um, all kinds of international mail. So uh, a number of books really reached um, the West through absolutely normal mail. Um, then we have the use of LPs, uh, cassettes, videos. Um, or Janos Kennedy, a Hungarian writer, um, he, for instance, relied on interlibrary loan of the National Library of Hungary to exchange literature. Or um, the daughter of Fanny Dreyf uh, told me in a, in a letter um, that his, her father had used the phone to transmit uh, some texts. He recounted that in the 1970s, he received the entire text of a Zacharov memorandum via the phone. Um, what was important here is that the transmitted text was in Dutch, so the Soviet senders couldn't really understand what he was talking about. Um, and all in all, I think smuggling brought people really across borders together. I believe that this particular social layer of Tamistad had a long-lasting social effect because it, I think it, the, the, part of my book is really about the social relationships that were established. And that's one of the things that really struck me about your book is the how much work it took that people weren't, it wasn't simply, oh, I'll write a book send it out and it'll get published. But there really were very extensive networks and a lot of people involved and a, uh, just a lot of work mm -hmm. to um, produce these um, uh, pieces of literature and, and the communities that were necessary to make it happen. And you've mentioned briefly already the emigres were a significant component of the publication of underground literature in the West and the creation of this transnational literary community. So can you be more specific and tell us a bit more about what kind of roles immigrants played in all of this? Yeah, I believe that immigrants were indeed very important. And I think that without their contribution, there wouldn't be any time response. Um, first of all, they had a moral authority because many of them had really experienced um, persecution themselves. Um, but um, they were no longer threatened um, with persecution, um, so they could really openly formulate their critical views. Um, secondly, they um, functioned as cultural mediators because they could really um, connect authors with Western publishers and they uh, could suggest to their East European colleagues where to publish best their writings. Um, and lastly, they could communicate much of their knowledge as well to the Western public because um, they spoke the language and um, um, they knew as well the mentality of the people. But this was not always an easy issue. Uh, a great number of immigrants talked about the alienation in the new host countries, and they wouldn't know how to transfer their um, uh, literary work uh, to the West. So um, the situation of the immigrants was not always unproblematic. And the other thing that wasn't unproblematic was the, the literature itself. And I was interested in your discussion of the ambiguous quality of underground literature. So it came in a range of forms, poetry, essays, documentation of suffering, other forms of fiction. And you described that those publishing these works in the West were not necessarily screening it for quality or even content at all. They were just publishing it to get it out there into circulation. And you also talked about, on the other hand, that underground writers weren't always necessarily pleased or they might have had some concerns with the literary or political profile of the publishers that were then um, putting their work out in the West. So can you talk more about these issues and also the issue about royalties, which was something you brought up? 
this is quite a difficult but very interesting question. It was definitely not one of those questions which I had in mind when I started the project because I went into the interviews and I thought everyone wants to publish in the West um, and they would be happy about that. But in those interviews, I realized, no, I think I need to really differentiate and I need to focus on the ambiguity of publishing in the West. Um, first of all, Samistad and Tamistad came in a range of forms and they came as well in a very a different range of quality. Um, and as they were not officially published, the text did not pass through censorship. Uh, censorship is not something good, or I don't want to say that, but um, there was no quality check. Yet, uh, if a piece of Samistad was not much favored by the author's peers, um, it would simply not be copied or it wouldn't be multiplied. Um, this would mean that it would not circulate, would not be read, and would not be discussed. So here we can observe some kind of internal peer review process inside the Samistad sphere. And uh, when it comes to Samistad publication, I was also facing very different retrospective um, evaluations in my interviews. Those branches that mostly wrote in Samistad um, they considered Samistad is far more valuable than a publication in the West. Um, to them, an underground publication had um, a real moral quality, uh, and they partly disqualified the importance of Samistad. Uh, in their eyes, there existed an, a really big moral difference between a real publication in the underground and a wrong or easy publication um, in the West. Um, on the other hand, immigrants, for instance, they judged the role of Western publications far more positively. Um, and they saw um, as well the underground and its Western reflection as a sort of common and united field. Uh, that wouldn't exist without Tamistad, and Tamistad wouldn't exist without the production within the underground. Um, but many underground writers were really pretty unhappy to see their Samistad works circulate in the West. Um, many texts were even smuggled to the West and uh, published without their permission. Um, uh, an important issue was also that some Istat texts sometimes lost much of their original meaning when they were removed from their um, original literary and cultural setting. Um, and underground writers also faced the problem of not receiving royalties from publications abroad um, because they were not bound by any copyright laws. But even when we have um, the copyright convention, um, things didn't get easier. And um, often also the wrong publisher or publishing house printed the text. Um, with wrong, I mean here um, journals or publishing houses that had an entirely different political profile than that of the author. Um, major Western media did not judge often the arriving literature on the grounds of their literary quality. Um, but as already said, on the basis of the political message. Um, so they used the text as the reflections of the opposition. Um, and it was sometimes enough that the authors did not conform to the official line of literary writing to gain fame in the West. Um, but neither Soviet officials seem to have judged Samistad um, on the grounds of its literary quality, but um, always on the grounds of its political message and meaning. Um, but a lot of the um, Tamistad writers, they were really hoping that uh, with their kind of literature, they would be um, able to change the attitude of the West towards um, the writing in the underground. And they hoped that they would have a non-political attitude towards their literatures. And in terms of the audience that they were reaching in the West, you referred to the New York Review of Books at the beginning of the interview in terms of how you found this topic of study. And I I was a bit surprised and really fascinated to see that uh, another group that was significantly involved in this translational literary community were indeed these high-profile intellectuals in New York City. So tell us more about who these intellectuals were and why did they get involved and how did they contribute to the Thomas Dot community? Mm-hmm. Um, a number of Western intellectuals were engaged um, with the cause of um, writers in the east, uh, eastern parts of Europe. Um, uh, but New York was not the only center. But I'm, I will talk now only about New York. But pa- Paris was, for instance, as well very important. Um, but New York became one of the hubs of intellectuals that published this uh, literature. And here, a group of um, 
high-profile intellectuals started to support um, East European writers. And this group included publishers, artists, playwrights, um, human rights activists, and um, they published Tommy Sard, but also they wrote these um, uh, very well-received um, public appeals. They organized um, human rights initiatives, um, though, or they invited as well um, uh, either immigrant authors or authors as well from the other Europe. Sometimes it was in the late 80s, it was allowed to get them over um, or they staged plays, uh, plays from Eastern Europe. Um, some of them as well traveled to the region uh, in order to get to know the authors. Um, and a um, very famous thing was the organization of book fairs. Um, among the key figures of this intellectual communities um, were publishers like Barbara and Jason Epstein and Robert Silvers, um, Edward Klein, um, um, writers, for instance, like um, Philip Roth, and Jerry um, uh, Labour is very well known as a human uh, rights activist at the time. Um, and all of them were uh, somehow involved in uh, media outlets like the New York Review of Books. Um, in the interviews I did with a range of them, uh, it beca became clear that um, each of them had a different personal story why to publish underground writers. Um, or why to visit certain countries um, or to establish contacts. Um, Robert Bernstein, for instance, wanted to publish Andrei Zakharov. Um, Barbara Epstein cared much about Václav Havel. Or Edward Klein wanted to publicize human rights abuses in the Soviet Union. So each time I think we really need to look into the very uh, particular biographies and their interest in certain authors. But, um, however, I felt that they shared a sense of a personal responsibility and they wanted to expose the abuse of human rights and literary rights. Um, and what united them all was that they didn't need to take any risks when they publicly expressed the disagreement um, with the writer's treatment. Um, so they could claim um, the rights of freedom of expression uh, without uh, taking any uh, problematic risks. Um, because of this comfortable situation, I think these public figures were key to introducing a new um, strain of writers to Western reading, to the Western reading world. Um, these intellectuals realized as well that Tommy Stutt articulated a world of unknown experiences. Um, life during socialism was something really particular and a new central experience. And by means of Tommy Stutt, they could... Um, get insight into this kind of experiences. Um, and I think that the Western readers, uh, readers valued particularly the personal anecdotes and autobiographical notes and diaries. Um, without these, um, Western audiences would have lacked knowledge about an essential part of European history. Um, however, beyond this, I argue in my book that um, the special interest in literature from the other Europe needs to be as well understood in the context of the entire 20th century. First of all, most of the intellectuals um, belong to the second or as well third generation of Jewish immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe. And um, their personal narratives really reveal that their own family stories back in Europe made them very receptive to these stories of literary repression. Um, and I argue um, that in some way this um, the decision to publish Tommy Stott um, served as a kind of way to re re reconnect as well to their own paths. Um, besides this, Tommy Stott had turned into an icon of human suffering um, with which they sort of tried to trigger some kind of new transnational morality. Um, but in order to really trace and understand the relationships um, between these New York um, publishers and um, the Tamistad authors, I would really need to read um, the actual correspondences. Um, but this wasn't possible until now. But, I, uh, but um, just recently, I got very excited to hear that the New York Review of Books um, archive has been acquired by the New York Public Library. So I'm very much hoping that I um, possibly can once really write another um, piece uh, or an article about um, about the correspondence between the review and its East European authors. 
that sounds like it's going to be a tre- treasure trove for your, this project, and I, it does sound exciting. And I, I want to talk more about this issue of human rights and the um, the role of the Western organizations as well in this transnational community. But I, I want to pause again and um, go to another topic just briefly. Throughout the book, you address the role of women in Thomas Dot. And can you talk more about gender and the transnational literary community? Um, yeah, I just talk um, very marginally about women because I need to say that um, I only found a few women figuring prominently as writers, poets, or essayists in the Somerset publications. Um, their writings might be still in the desk drawers. Um, but Shauna Pan tried to identify the reasons why women were largely underrepresented in the Polish opposition, for instance, and she had uh, argued convincingly that this was partly due to their very tight daily routines, um, which um, combined a full working day as well with their responsibility for the household and childcare. Um, This meant that they were not as flexible and willing as their husbands um, when it came to participating in public demonstrations. Um, But she had also demonstrated the Polish underground press represented some kind of non-factory side of solidarity. And here, women did indeed participate. Um, But a number of female activists in Central Eastern Europe stressed the fact um, that their degree of involvement um, always carried the risk of losing their jobs, having their children institutionalized in a state orphanage, or even getting long-term imprisonment. And this kept many of them from producing literature that could provoke state interference. Um, This might help us to better understand their marginal representation in some historiography. But there existed really other ways women were much involved. Um, They typed manuscripts at night and helped circulate the material among their friends. Many of the women used their shopping bags or handbags to smuggle leaflets or uh, to carry Samistat uh, copies across the city. Um, While women were often um, predominantly typists or carrier pigeons, um, they used the literary underground as well to put their social skills into practice. Um, They established um, and maintained the personal contact between the network members. And these social ties were, I would say, very, very important for establishing this kind of... um, internal community. Um, A number of women also gained um, particular prominence after their famous dissident husband had been imprisoned or sent to the Gulag. Um, This was when they took over important functions. Um, Especially on the transnational platform, many female activists helped to maintain cross-border connections. They uh, cultivated relationships that were instrumental in keeping the flow of literature running. And these, um, I liked how in the book you you tracked that through the whole narrative, even though we here have kind of summarized it um, in the interview. Um, and now I want to go back to uh, this Thomas Dot relationship between as a transmission of literary works. And you've already mentioned that this wasn't a one-way process. And so tell us more about how organizations like Radio Free Europe and PEN were involved in this transmission of uh, literature across the uh, so-called Iron Curtain. Um, So Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were um, extremely important agents in this whole Tamistat endeavor. They had been established to... um, slowly break down the Soviet monopoly on ideas. Um, in order to do this, they, um, they used the language and the voice of the very people in those communist countries. Um, and their major aim was to fulfill an echo function. Um, this meant that they had to obtain um, uncensored literature from the region, translate and analyze it. And then and that was really the key of the radios. They wanted to broadcast it back. So their main aim was not to convince the West, but they really wanted to bring information about the countries themselves back and into the Eastern Bloc. Um, the radios established various types of shows um, that used Samistat materials. Um, some of them used Samistat as a resource to report on developments inside the Soviet Bloc. Um, others directly broadcast Samistat texts back into the Soviet sphere. 
Um, this included texts which could be hardly obtained in the Soviet bloc. Um, for instance, there were texts by Pasternak, Solzhenitsyn, and Zinyavsky as well. Um, the radios relied heavily on immigrants. They served both as experts as well as mediators. Um, as, already, as I mentioned already earlier, they could combine their familiarity with the Soviet context, with their knowledge of the West, and particularly their voices were used to transmit the literary works back to the home countries. Um, to transmit material back into the Soviet sphere uh, was the station's paramount concern, but um, in the 1970s, uh, also a number of products developed that were directed at, at uh, Western audiences. Um, they translated documents to inform Western experts, scholars, and readers about East European developments. And I would like to mention here um, that the radios really helped to preserve Samistat, um, and they accumulated an amazing collection of um, otherwise lost texts. Um, still today, we can um, profit as scholars um, from the RFERL collections at the Hoover Institution Archives in Stanford or um, the Open Society Archives in Budapest. Um, as to Penn, um, that was another institution and it had a really different profile um, from the radios. Um, but Penn also facilitated the literary contact across the Iron Curtain. Um, it particularly lobbied for the needs of poets, essayists and novelists. Um, so it was really a literary institution and they battled for writers' freedom of expression, and um, they used the rhetoric of rights to petition for writers um, um, who were either censored, imprisoned, uh, who had lost their jobs, or um, who had been forced into exile. Um, um, on the other hand, the writers from the region, they were very keen on joining Penn, um, because for them, Penn was a window on, on the West, with some very practical advantages. Um, for instance, through Penn, they got better possibilities for getting translated into Western languages. Um, but above all, I think uh, they were interested in the opportunity to personally meet writers from other countries. And um, the very famous Penn meetings, they fulfilled this function. Mm -hmm. I myself have used the Radio Free Europe um, archives at, at the Hoover Institute. So they are amazing collections of things that documentation that they gathered over the years. You've talked about this human rights movement and how the, um, the publication of these literary works in the West also then brought Western attention to the writers and, and to human, human rights issues in communist Europe. And that really seems to have become the central focus in the 70s and the 80s. What impact did the Helsinki Accords have on writers in communist countries and on this transnational literary community? Um, the Helsinki Final Act um, is really widely considered as a very important moment um, in the articulation of human rights. Um, but there is a very long debate already going on um, about the role of this act in uh, really breaking down the Iron Curtain um, and I really fully agree with Paulina Bren or um, as well Stephen Kotkin, um, who both argue that the Helsinki Accords were, they were ne neither a real treaty nor were they really legally binding. Um, therefore, the authorities did not feel um, obliged to implement them. Uh, also, ordinary people did not care very much about Helsinki. Um, but this is not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in... Um, um, 89 and the break crumbling down of the Iron Curtain and the legal implementation of Helsinki. Um, I just wanted to look at Helsinki from the perspective really of literature and from, of writers. Um, so when it comes to intellectuals or international NGOs or um, journalists, Helsinki did really represent a very important moment. It gave voice to a, an emerging cross-Iron Curtain human rights net network. Um, and Sarah Snyder and Araya Nair both contended that um, certain groups um, used the Helsinki Accords really to claim their rights. So in my book, um, what Helsinki demanded in terms of an increased physical exchange of literature across partitioned Europe, that's what I was interested in. 
and how these demands contributed to such literary projects that implemented these demands. So I'm, I'm, the only thing I'm doing in my book is to link the claims of Helsinki um, surrounding uh, uh, the claims surrounding Helsinki to the transnational call, call for the observance of the rights of writers. Mm-hmm. And throughout this interview and also throughout your book, you refer to communist Europe as the other Europe. How did Thomas Dot contribute to understandings or perhaps misunderstandings of Eastern Europe and the West? And the same, how did it contribute to understandings and misunderstandings of the West and the East? Um, most uh, Thomas Dot publishers really hoped to create new forms of communication between East and West. And they wanted to go beyond stereotypes of, of the, both of these parts of Europe. And they wanted to recreate a common Europe by means of literature, and they absolutely knew that uh, nothing or very little could be done to actually change Europe's political division, um, but they were um, unwilling to further accept Europe's literary division. Um, therefore, people like Michael Scammell on Index on Censorship or Antonin Lima of Lettre Internationale, they really started to undermine Europe's literary division. Um, they started to reunite the body of European literature. Um, so they increased the literary transfers between both sides of Europe. And uh, what really resulted from this were literary and personal exchanges. Um, because lots of publishers, actors, human rights activists traveled to Eastern Europe to get to know the writers they were lobbying for. So I think that Tamista really helped to reconnect both parts of Europe. And it tried really to go beyond the misunderstandings of Eastern Europe. Well, thank you, Frederica, for giving us so much of your time and talking about this book. And I hope that our readers will get a copy and um, take a look at it because there's a lot more uh, to it that we didn't have time to discuss. And I'd like to close by asking you what you are working on now, in addition, of course, to making plans to go to the New York Public Library. Um, so I'm currently in the German system, which means I'm supposed to write my second book about a very different topic in different time, and I should as well pursue a very different approach. So um, what I'm doing is um, writing a book on child poverty and child relief in Budapest after World War I, and uh, it is really a, a rather a social history and not a cultural history like my last book. And I'm trying to identify the impact of World War I on children's lives. I look at issues like hunger, epidemics, displacement. Um, but I'm equally interested in all kinds of relief measures for children. I focus in particular on the transnational and transatlantic dimension of relief. And I think this is possibly one of the aspects uh, in which I stay very similar uh, as compared to my last book. I think I'm always interested in these transnational and trans, uh, transatlantic moves and connections. And I'm again <laughs> working now on a topic which does that. So I look at uh, a local um, East European setting and I look at who is claiming to provide relief to the poor Hungarian child. So I look at um, the American Relief Administration. I'm looking at the International Red Cross. I'm looking at Save the Children. And I look at how do they, all these institutions sort of struggle over the poor East European child after World War I. And I look at, well, at, at the political uh, implications of, of relief at the time. And for this project, I've been in a dozen Hungarian archives, in the National Archives in Washington, in the Save the Children Archive in Birmingham, Geneva, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, and as well Hoover Archives again. So I, well, which is, what is really nice is that I'm allowed to return back to Hoover, um, and there both books sort of possibly get together again. Um, but what is different in this project is that I found an amazing amount of wonderful visuals, I think around six, 700 pictures, and I'm wondering if I should not do really an exhibition with these materials, um, because I don't think ever anyone has seen them. Um, and I did as well interviews, and that's uh, possibly also another angle uh, which is similar to my last book. I did interviews uh, with former children that had still experienced immediate post-war period. One of the ladies was even 101 years old, and um, it was amazing to talk to someone 
not with experiences of the Cold War, but with experiences of the uh, uh, post-World War I period. Um, and I'm hoping to complete this volume either this year or next year. Well, I hope that we'll be able to, to interview you again for new books in East European studies, um, because that sounds like a really fascinating project, and um, especially all of the different elements and um, the ways in which you might communicate that story, not just through a book, but through an exhibition. So that's very exciting. So thank you again for talking about this book with us. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us at New Books and East European Studies. We look forward to having you with us uh, next month for our next interview. <music>